The call on the ice stands. We got to go. Up the colors. We are set to go. Let's roll, boys. Come on, let's get going. We are kicking. Here we go. Oh, guys, five minutes each for fighting. Watch the blue. Play the puck. Run to it. After further review, it's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Yeah, baby. Here's your hosts, Todd Lewis and Josh Smith. Okay, gentlemen, play ball. Let's go. All right, guys, let's drop the puck. I don't say this often, Josh, but we have firsts this week. This is game situations, circumstances, scenarios, however you want to call it. We have a number of firsts this week, and that's unusual. It always makes it fun when you get to dive in and look in the rule book and go, wait a second. I I know this is covered in here somewhere, but you got to dust off some of those rules that maybe haven't come up in a while and uh, refresh yourself on some situations. It's it's part of the challenges that the officials face as well is uh, when those one-offs, when those random plays come up, you, you got to be sharp. You got to know exactly what rule applies. And some of them go way, way, way into the depths of the rule book. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into it all on this edition of the Scouting the Rest podcast. Again, we remind you, please make sure you're following us on the social channel get Josh on both X and Instagram at Scouting the Refs. You'll find me on X and Instagram at Todd Lewis Sports. Coming up on this week's episode, NHL means no hit league, according to Torts. That'll cost you, but not as much as you think. I'm sorry, the play is over. Let him go. And does this nugget belong to you? How's that for a tease? Oh, and, and if it does, might, might I return it to you kindly, sir? <laughs> That's right. Okay, we'll save that one for a little bit later. First off, some congratulations this week. We send it out to linesman Brian Murphy, who was officially inducted into the USA Hockey Hall of Fame this week. We send congratulations there. And also to former NHL linesman John Grant, who worked his final college game and leaves the ice now to become the director of officiating in the USHL. It is nice to see longtime officials staying involved in the game. Yeah, for Grant, I mean, who says you can't go home again? He started in the USHL, worked a couple seasons there, spent time in the NHL, the AHL, worked some college hockey, including the Frozen Four Championship this past season. And now he goes back as the director of officiating. So good for him to stay involved and keep contributing to the game, which obviously, you know, when you're when you put the time in, when you work that hard, when you work that much in these leagues, it's it's nice to be able to find a way to keep contributing. And that was a hallmark of what Brian Murphy did. I mean, we talk about his contributions on the ice. Uh, one of two Americans, eight individuals ever to work more than 2,000 regular season games in the NHL over 32 years. But, you know, when we talked to him a few weeks back on the podcast, the thing he was most proud of is his contributions to USA Hockey, to developing young officials, and you know what he's given back to the game. So great for him to get the honor of the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, and, and great for John Grant in his new gig. So congrats to both. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's rewind a little bit and go back to a game that took place about a week ago. And it was just kind of being, the discipline was just kind of being handed out as we recorded the last edition of the, the podcast. It was the Flyers and Devils game. Travis Konechny got fined. Brendan Smith had to sit for two games. And I think rightfully so. I think the punishments there were pretty reasonable, I think, in this case. So let's deal with that first. I think this was uh, just kind of a, Philly, New Jersey game and both got a little agitated. One gets fined, one gets suspended. Yeah, an interesting situation here. I mean, it's nice to see the league coming after some stick work that happened behind the play. Just because it's not called during the game doesn't mean player safety is not going to come calling the next day. So Konechny gets a fine for the uh, for his stick work, but it's it's Smith that really 
bears the brunt of player safety's ire here for the two-handed slash across the arms. And as they noted in their decision to suspend him, you know, this, this wasn't, it was a two-sided affair when it came to the back and forth, but it definitely escalated with Smith. You know, a cross-check, those types of things, we kind of allow a little bit more. We expect it. This two-handed whack right here, and you can see it. I mean, it's a baseball-style swing. Uh, away from the play, not a hockey play, away from the puck completely, and very dangerous. So I, I can understand why they'd suspend two games. Of course, J we just had Jacob Truba with a similar type swing, hit a guy in the head that saw no suspension. Smith goes for two here. So you, you know that player safety is taking more into account, the severity of the hit. And there's no question, like with the Truba play, maybe there was an off balance. Maybe there was a deflection. Maybe something else happened. No question that Smith here, it's a two-hander to the arm. He connected. He connected with a lot of force exactly as he intended to do on the play. So uh, both guys paying the price, one in dollars, one in games, and uh, lost salary. Also in this game, there was an incident involving uh, Garnet Hathaway and New Jersey's Luke Hughes. Hathaway gets tossed for a ginormous hit on Hughes. Now, Philly coach John Tortorella had some comments about this hit the day after. And paraphrasing, he's worried that the NHL is becoming a no-hit league. He didn't think this hit was, was even a penalty or should have been a penalty. It was a guy finishing his checks. And, well, needless to say, we had lots of opinions on both sides of this equation. So having looked at it again, Josh, give me your thoughts on where you stand with this particular play. I'm going to back into it, Todd, here, because there's there's okay. two things. There's two things at play. And I'll look at the first part of it. The boarding rule is is very specific. There's a lot of judgment around what is considered boarding and how the officials should be applying a boarding penalty. Rule 41.1 says that the onus is on the player applying the check to make sure that the opponent is not in a defenseless position. And if so, he must avoid or minimize contact. And I think that's the problem that we have on this play is that... He doesn't minimize contact. His opponent is uh, defenseless. Hughes' position relative to the boards is really what contributed to the severity of this hit. If Hughes keeps playing, if he doesn't think it's an icing, if he doesn't let up on the play, I think it comes out a bit differently. But you've got Hathaway playing to the whistle. You've got Hughes pulling up a little bit early there. And, and that's what makes this a dangerous hit. So when we look at it that way, I can understand where the officials were coming from. And they did review the play. They they took the opportunity to review it. They confirmed the call on the ice game. Misconduct goes along with that boarding major. But to me, Todd, the, the frustrating part of the whole thing, and I, I think this is probably part of Tort's argument, is why Hughes was where he was at the time of the hit in the first place. And it comes down to the icing call. And unfortunately, we have a, a rookie linesman here working his first season. I think it's his 10th NHL game. And you see the guys going down to play the puck. And that icing call needs to be made based on which is going to touch the puck at the time the first player reaches the face-off dots. So when you watch the play and you see what happened, he hesitates. It looks like he might wave off the icing and there's no whistle. Then the whistle sounds, but that's already after the hit has been initiated. And, and that's where I look at the other piece of the icing rule. They clarify in the rule later on to say the determining factors, which player would touch the puck, at the time they reached the face-off dot. So when you see that play and you realize that icing should have been blown well before Hathaway was even initiating the hit, it's it's unfortunate that that's how it played out. You know, usually uh, it, it's not that much of a bang-bang play on an icing, but this is one of those situations where Hughes is expecting the icing and he pulls up short, he doesn't play to the whistle, and 
he's not wrong. It, it was going to be icing on the play, but because that whistle didn't sound because the icing call doesn't come in time, you end up with him putting himself in a dangerous spot there. So I, I think when Tortorella is complaining about the penalty or the severity of it, I, I have to think that Hughes positioning is what contributed to it. But when you look at it on its face, it's a dangerous play. And and under the boarding rule, I, I think it's one that the, the league's going to watch for because Hathaway really needs to, to pull up, minimize contact in that situation. So I think that's why it went the way it did. And I understand Tortorella being frustrated on it because otherwise it's a that's a nice solid body check. It's just <laughs> how it played right. out made it a bit more dangerous than I think uh, even Hathaway would have intended. As is often the case, the circumstances play into the ruling and the the consequences of such a big hit. Do we eliminate this problem by simply going to no touch icing as soon as the puck crosses the goal line? It's blown dead. That would perhaps be a uh, a way to eliminate this issue in the future. Yeah, I think fans forget how dangerous icing used to be when we required the touch-up here. You know, these types of hits would be happening all the time, mm -hmm. or you'd get guys getting blown up, especially when the puck was going around the net where you're racing back to touch it, and it, you're racing into the wall. Um, so for fans that are new to the game or, or didn't grow <laughs> up watching these guys plow full speed in to try to avoid an icing there, uh, we've, we've made a lot of changes that have made the game safer. No touch would go a bit farther, but it, it does take away some of the competition there because you get plays where it's close and i think when icing is called properly when it is and and fans get this wrong so uh, you know there's there's no harm in clarifying the rule that it is a race to the puck but the race to the puck is assessed at the time the players are at the face-off dots and and it's saved a lot unfortunately it didn't work out that way on this play Yes, uh, I, I do think we're in a better spot now as opposed to the Wiley Coyote uh, Hockey League where you're <laughs> running towards a brick wall, which is which is what it used to be. So, okay. Uh, the uh, dreaded intent to blow phrase popped up this past week as well in a game with the uh, San Jose Sharks, New Jersey Devils. Devils scored with about half of the third period remaining thought now that they were only trailing in the game by one goal. However, referee John McIsaac had something else to say. The puck did cross the goal line. However, referee McIsaac had intended to blow the play dead prior to going in the net. So what happens here, Josh, is we have no goal. We have no goal, and, and that is the right call on this play. I think... Man, we've had so many intent to blows, and I know fans get frustrated with the idea that they're like, either blow the whistle or don't, or we play to the whistle. You play to the whistle, but there are situations where the referee may determine the play to have already been stopped, and this is one. So you see McIsaac just off frame there. He is at the point where his whistle's raised to his lips. It hasn't sounded yet, but this is a moment when, presumably, he's determined that the play is dead. The puck is not yet over the line. You can see Heesher reaching in there with his stick, and moments later... That's when we see the puck over. So I, I'm on board with this intent to blow because this does purely seem like the human factor here where McIsaac's getting into position. He can see the goal line. After it goes in, sure, the whistle sounds after that, but the the push from Heischer is what put the puck over the line. And that push came after McIsaac determined the play to be stopped. So while sometimes it's a gray area and sometimes it's arguable, I'm good with this one. This is, I think, how intent to blow should be called this is why it exists in the rule book because the puck's covered the play is stopped it's that push from Heesher that comes after the play was intended to be stopped so this one i think they got it right yes and there is that lapse in time from the referee lifting his hand put the whistle to his mouth and then and then yeah. blowing so it does make sense 
Okay, we had a curious one in the Detroit and Buffalo game with the Sabres battling to tie the game and an empty net. Jake Wallman decides he's going to give Jeff Skinner a little stick work in front of the net. Wallman gets hit with a two-minute minor penalty, and the Department of Player Safety had a look at it and decided that they were going to issue a fine afterwards. Now, the fine was for $2,500, and you will not hear me use the phrase, the maximum allowed under the CBA, <laughs> because it does not apply here, and I couldn't figure out why. Of course, on NHL.com, there is no such explanation forthcoming, but maybe you can provide a little insight into why this wasn't a maximum fine, Josh? Oh, Todd, I wish I could. I, I don't know. It's a cross-check to the head. I, I think the lack of a maximum, maybe the, the severity was a little bit lower. They want to send a message here, but man, $2,500 is not a big deal in this type of situation. I was surprised that it was. I, we've only had three fines all last season that were less than the league maximum. So when you're finding a guy who's making $3.4 million a year, maybe the difference between 2,500 and 5,000 isn't all that much, but the fact that they opted to make it less than 5,000 was a bit surprising to me. I, I look across check to the head. I, I'm starting at 5,000 going up from there. So uh, uh, I'll say I'm personally a little bit disappointed in this one. Yeah. I, I, I think disappointed is very mild uh, in this, in this particular case. Okay. Let's jump out of the NHL for a minute and go to the federated hockey prospects league. It's not something that we cover regularly here on the scouting the rest podcast, but a couple of suspensions worth noting here. First off motor city rockers forward Declan Conway gets suspended two games. We'll call it unsportsmanlike conduct, but apparently what a uh, young Declan did was flip the double bird to <laughs> some that were expressing their displeasure at the game. I can understand why you maybe get uh, thrown out for a couple of games for that. I, I love the quote from the director of player safety, who is our, our good friend Dave Jackson. I'm not really sure why Mr. Conway felt the need to embarrass himself, his teammates, and the league. This is a quote. But flipping the double bird and pointing to his groin has earned Mr. Conway a two-game suspension. <laughs> no matter what verbal abuse comes from the crowd, this type of behavior is never acceptable, especially with children in attendance. There you go. So it's a game for each bird, I guess. Uh, the port here on Prowlers forward, Tucker Scandleberry gets two games for an unprovoked cross-check to the face of an opponent. That's more, more than a $2,500 fine. I think a two-game suspension is quite reasonable here. Yeah, uh, once again, I'm going to quote Jackson on this one. Mr. Scandleberry's opponent is skating towards him and may be verbally taunting him, but the response is completely disproportionate with the threat presented, <laughs> delivering a two-handed cross-check directly to his opponent's face. Ouch. Yeah. Okay, so here's the big one now. Danbury forward, Daniel Amesbury, suspended eight, games for a late dirty hit. Now, this is not a first offense, which is why Amesbury gets such a, a lengthy suspension. So here's the logic going into it. He is a repeat offender. He was suspended for 12 games less than a year ago by the league. So by league rule, the next suspension goes up by at least 50%. I love this. I like this kind of ruling. It's a crazy rule. I mean, I get it, especially in this type of a league where you, you really have to hold these guys to a standard where you're you're not going to play, especially when it's a subsequent 
intent to injure suspension. So you get a 12 game ban. That means your next suspension starts at 12. You get the, the multiplier there. It's it's like pinball scoring here where you're, yeah. you're packing on <laughs> multipliers and bonuses, but it makes a lot of sense, especially when you have a repeat offender and, and their repeat offender window is 12 months. Obviously player safety looks at 18 months when it comes to lost salaries and fines, but they look at a player's entire history when it comes to whether they're assessing additional length on a suspension because of their their background or prior suspensions, prior fines and things like that. But I, I have to say for that 12 month multiplier in there to put that as a, as a rule to say that, you know, you've got a, a year. If you do this again in the next 12 months, we're, we're tacking on your original suspension. We're giving a 50 percent on top of it. I think it makes a lot of sense. If you want to get this type of stuff out of the game, this is the kind of suspension that you have to hand out. That would make obviously the NHLPA lose their minds. But this is yes. this is what yes. would be effective. Yeah, I, I agree. So let's 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 move back in into the NHL and we'll just kind of lighten things a little bit. There was a rather a rather cheeky play by Arizona Coyotes Sean Dersey in a game involving the the St. Louis Blues. Uh forward Braden Shen is checked into the front of the Coyotes bench by Liam O'Brien. Dersey happens to be sitting on the bench and well, makes it a little difficult for Shen to return to the play. He's kind of holding him there for three or four seconds. And well, he got caught and got rung up for two minutes. It's it's a funny piece of video. He looks like Winnie the Pooh trying to get out of the honey tree here. <laughs> That's, that's exactly right. You're spot on there. And I, I love the sneaky move by Dursey. I mean, he's he almost got away with it if it wasn't for that pesky Jean Bear watching the play here because, man, a, a, a good move. Way to get under your opponent's skin. And I, I love it. Look at him right there. Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. <laughs> he's stuck. I'm wrong, his, I'm stuck. His skates are off the ice and everything. But yeah, I you you absolutely can't do that. And the NHL has rules against these sort of things. It's a minor penalty for interference on any player on the bench who by means of his stick or body interferes with the movements of the puck or any opponent on the ice, which obviously Dursey did. But the funny wrinkle, Todd, is since this was a bench minor penalty from the bench, it's assessed to the team as a bench minor penalty and Dursey didn't actually have to serve it. Oh, well, even better for them. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jason Zucker gets to go across the ice, serve time for uh, what his buddy down the line committed here. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm sure there was a team fine afterwards <laughs> for that. So, uh, All right. Our man Sean McIndoo was waxing nostalgic this week on a piece in The Athletic. And looking back on the good old days in the National Hockey League to things like when the linesmen used to climb the glass around the rink. Yes, if you, if you go back and watch old video, you will see... Guys in stripes up on the boards, climbing the glass to avoid the players on the ice. It's a lost art. Sean also misses the goal judges that used to be behind the net in every NHL rink. They did start to move them around a little bit after that, but it's it's valuable real estate, and those are tickets that can be sold. So none of them exist anymore in the National Hockey League. Um, I, I think that we could try to bring back some of this fun nostalgia when the NHL drags out the nostalgia of the outdoor games, especially the Winter Classic on New Year's Day, there's plenty of room. Put a goal judge in behind each of the nets. Let them light up the light. I don't I don't think they're going to be climbing the glass anymore since it's eight, <laughs> six or eight feet tall, but at least we can get the goal judges out there. I don't know. You, you get the old guys like Mike Civic up there. I'm sure he could still reach up top. He's still <laughs> he could, six, yes. seven plus, but uh, you know, you had them climbing up. They'd reach the glass. They'd hop up off the ice. You, you love the idea. It was always fun to watch them get out of the way. And now uh, I think I'm, I'm more concerned about their 
their skates getting up in the air. But I think the goal judge, you're right, Todd, those, those seats were expensive. You look back here, Madison Square Garden, how much can they charge for this seat where you got the goal judge perched back there, watching the play, taking up valuable real estate there, all just so that he can watch the puck go across the line and, and hit his game show buzzer. Which <laughs> you can see right here, lo looking like he's ready to answer an Alex Trebek question on Jeopardy here when the puck crosses the line. But I, uh, I, I would love to see it in the outdoor game. I love the nostalgia. We can have uh, older off-ice officials freezing their tuchuses off, mm -hmm. watching for the puck to cross the line. But I've, I've had the pleasure of sitting near the goal judges and, and actually talking to a few. It's funny when we look back now because – You've got a guy who's likely a retired official uh, up there in years, most wearing glasses. You perch them behind the net and you say, okay, you just watch. And, and when you see the puck cross the line, you you hit hit that little button right there. Just that one. <laughs> That's hit right. that button. And uh, the red light will come on. Some of them were tied to the arena. So the, the arena would start going nuts. So you'd have the goal horn play and everything else. But really, I mean, I, I guess that was what we had in the 50s and 60s. That was the technology that we could leverage. Uh it's just it's kind of funny to think that we we so long depended on a man sitting in a phone booth behind the glass <laughs> to really clean up there, try to see what's going on. Yeah. And and some of them, they that's where the, the Zamboni comes on and yes. off the ice as well. So they would have to wait until they close the doors, put a stool back down yep. and the guy would sit there, put uh, hold the buzzer again. I, I um, love the idea for the outdoor game. So because if we're going to go throwback, we're going to go old school. Let's let's bring back the gold judges. Yeah, let's go all in. OK. One more fun one to wrap up this edition. This one taking place in the ECHL, Toledo Walleye Kalamazoo Wings. Right after a face-off, it is the Walleye's Kirill Tatyanov uses his stick to flip a chicken nugget that has been tossed onto the ice back into the crowd. There was some discourse on social media afterwards trying to determine whether it was a chicken nugget or a chicken strip. We'll go with chicken nugget, probably easier to flip. <laughs> Tatayev <laughs> was given a 10-minute misconduct for this play. So this is one of those, this is a first. I have never seen or heard of this before, and I didn't know that flipping a chicken nugget into the stand was a 10-minute misconduct. <laughs> Look, the, the rule calls for a misconduct penalty for flipping a, a stick or a puck or any piece of equipment into the stands. Up until now, I, I didn't consider chicken nuggets to be equipment, so I'm I'm a bit baffled as well. I, I don't remember many situations when food products entered the ice in the first place. Of course, afternoon game, kids in attendance, uh, one kid that wanted to get involved in the action there, maybe feed a player or two, thinking he was at the zoo. But uh, yeah. I don't remember food entering the ice. And I'm I'm honestly, I was a bit surprised, but Trevor Wolford's calling the rules as he sees them, calling it by the book and saying, you shot something into the stands. <laughs> We're not going to allow it, even if it was just a chicken nugget. I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a strange one. It's a curious one. Again, it's a first. I don't know that we'll see it again. Are, are we going to have... Uh, chicken nugget night at some games. Maybe there's going to be some sort of promotion. There's There's got to be hey, an opportunity here. I, I'm not sure which way it goes. Do, do you have the players shoot nuggets into the crowd for the fans? <laughs> or, or, or do we go the junior hockey way and have the chicken nugget toss where they just rain down? <laughs> Good stuff, man. Where to work?
Get in the box. It's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Read more at scoutingtherefs.com. Follow Scouting the Refs on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Email the show at heyref at scoutingtherefs.com. Subscribe, share, and keep those sticks down. That's good play.